This is a supplemental episode to The Iron Heel, which includes our full interview with Jack London expert Jay Williams about his biographical trilogy about London. Hello, I'm Edward Einhorn, the writer and director of this adaptation of The Iron Heel, and I will be talking with Jay Williams, one of the preeminent experts about the life and work of Jack London. He was the senior managing editor of the journal Critical Inquiry until he retired in 2017. He is the author of a three-volume biography of Jack London entitled Author Under Sale, The Imagination of Jack London, and the editor of two volumes, The Oxford Handbook of Jack London and Signature Derrida, and general editor of Oxford's The Complete Works of Jack London. He lives in Petaluma, California, and is currently working on two books, Bohemia America and Dancing Through the 60s with the Grateful Dead. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me, Edward. So um, let's just uh, start with a little bit about you, maybe. Um, How did you first become interested in Jack London and his work? Unlike a lot of people, I think, I didn't come to Jack London until graduate school. So I didn't read To Build a Fire or Call of the Wild as a kid. And I came to London in a seminar that was entitled, I believe, Forgotten Works of American Literary Realism and Naturalism. And we read Martin Eden in that class, uh, along with The Octopus and other works of writers in his time period or shortly before, actually. So at that point, I was looking for a topic for a dissertation, and I was very much interested in textual scholarship. One of my advisors was Tom Tanzel, who was the textual editor and scholar for the Northwestern Newberry Complete Works of Herman Melville. So I was looking for an author who had an archive that presented interesting textual problems. And I can't remember when I stumbled upon the Star Rover, but at some point in 1980, 81, I found out that the Star Rover had been originally entitled The Jacket and then was changed to The Star Rover, and there was no documentation about this title change. That led me to believe that There could be a whole slew of interesting textual problems to address in London's work. And then I discovered that he had this enormous archive of material at the Huntington Library in San Marino, California. And so I just got in the car and drove across country and started working in the library and realized that there weren't any interesting textual problems in the Star Rover. It was pretty routine, but afforded me... uh, an opportunity to practice textual editing skills. So I continued with the Star Rover. But the more I dug into the Star Rover, the more I realized that London did not fit into the general accepted paradigm of American realism and naturalism that so dominates, still dominates, the study of American literature. So there is this period that people have trouble defining that occurs after, say, Wharton and James, and before Hemingway and Fitzgerald, that's roughly speaking, right? And people just label it, that's the period of American realism and naturalism. And London is somehow an exemplar of this period, right? And I thought that just can't be true because the Star Rover is neither realistic nor naturalistic. In fact, it's all about 
time travel and the immortality of the soul. So I started reading what London had been reading and realized I would never be able to read all that he read in my lifetime because he had spent his lifetime reading and writing. And so what then attracted me to London was this confluence of reading and writing. All writers read in order to be inspired, right? And they all draw material from their lives and from the books that they read. But London had a very special relationship to the books that he read. And he marked them up, saved his books, wrote drafts of stories and novels in the back of the books that seemed to be completely unrelated to what he was reading. So then I realized that these books, not only did they form like a philosophical foundation for his writing, but they were actually a means to compose rough drafts. And so this was another stage in the development of my sense of London's extraordinariness as a working author. And so that was, that was my focus. I wasn't terribly interested in all the usual biographical conundrums of London's life. Who was his father? How did he die? Was he an alcoholic? Did he use drugs? Was he uh, unfaithful to his first wife? Was he unfaithful to his second wife? All of those things seemed ancillary to what I was truly interested in, which was his relationship to his imagination. And then that just exploded. I thought I'd have a one-volume biography, and it turned into three. And where are you in the process with those biographies? You're the first two out, I believe, but second one recently came out. Yes, the the second one came out, and I should mention that these are all published by the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, Matt Bakavoy is uh, my editor there, and he's been absolutely wonderful. And I don't know of any other press who would just give an author such as myself a chance to write 2,000 pages on a single author. But they do, <laughs> and he does. So, so the second volume just came out, uh, and that the first volume came out in 2014, I think, and that covered the period from 1893 to 1902. The second one covers the period 1902 to 1907, and then the third one will go from 1907 to his death in 1916. And I was working on volume three. I have three chapters done of volume three, and then March 16, 2020, the Huntington closed because of the virus, and I had the C's work on the book. So you seem like you're on the verge, or maybe you've already begun writing about the point in his life where he was writing The Iron Heel. So could you tell us a little bit about where he was in his life at that point? Oh, sure. Yeah, this is covered in the second volume and towards the end, because he started writing The Iron Heel in August 1906, and he Finished, if I remember correctly, in December 1906. It's 90,000 words, so it's a short novel. He thought it would be longer, but as he told his publisher, George Brett at Macmillan and Company, the book had to end with the Chicago Commune and that incredible bloody battle at the end because anything else would be anticlimactic. So August 1906... I mean, this is an incredibly interesting period in London's life, and it's really important to know what he was writing before and what he was doing before he started writing The Iron Heel and what he did immediately after, because we understandably 
think of this book as an exposition of his socialistic point of view, right? Somehow independent from all his work on the Klondike or all his work on Northern California. But in fact, it's part and parcel of the whole thing. So in 1906, he starts taking notes. He's done a lot of reading, of course, in socialism. He started reading, he read a a 10-page pamphlet that was taken from Karl Marx's Capital, and he read that in 1895. So very early on, he was introduced to Marx's actual language, right? And he read Lawrence Groundland's Cooperative Commonwealth. He read uh, Bellamy's Looking Backward. And those three texts for Americans were the central texts for socialism, right? There was a lot of German work coming out. It was slowly being translated. But these works were available, were the principal texts for American socialists and for Jack London. In August, he continued his reading. He kind of stepped it up and drew on uh, works like William Ghent's Mass and Class, Ernest Underman's Science and Evolution, and fictional works by H.G. Wells and by August Donnelly. Those are the usual works that are cited in studies of Iron Heel. And for the most part, it's accurate to say that those works influenced his his writing, except for Donnelly. Donnelly's work, I'm not sure why people think Caesar's Column was a precursor to the Iron Heel, because it's just so very, very different. Anyway, as he's reading, and we know what he's reading because his wife, Charmian London, his second wife, kept a daily diary the entire length of her time with Jack and before and after. And she would dutifully mark down what they were reading. So we have the documentation, right? And at some point, I think it was in early September, he decided that was enough reading and he embarked on writing this book. One of the works I should mention right off the bat, too, that was heavily influential and that people really haven't talked about is George Bernard Shaw's Man and Superman. And it's my contention that he describes Ernest Everhard, the hero of the Iron Heel, or one of the heroes of the Iron Heel, as a Superman because he had just read Man and Superman. Before that, whenever he wanted to talk about Nietzsche's exemplary individuals, he would use the term Blonde Beast. So Blonde Beast does appear in Iron Heel, but Iron Heel is the only place that he uses the word Superman. So to some extent, and it's a very complicated sense, Nietzsche was an influence uh, on London in writing The Iron Heel. So he finishes in December, and then the very next day, he begins his semi-autobiographical memoir novel, it's hard to say what it is, entitled The Road. And for that, he took no notes. (laughs) Apparently, there was just no preparation. He just the very next day, he jumped right into writing that. So that's incredibly interesting when you think about his compositional practice. Before The Iron Heel, he had written two short stories. One was a Klondike story, and he, he had to uh, write a Klondike story to finish off a collection of short stories that he was contracted to do. And the other story is this bizarre, bizarre because it's so anomalous, short story, really a sketch of called Just Meat. And it features two robbers in San Francisco who 
steal a bunch of, I think it's jewelry, if I remember correctly, go back to their apartment, divvy up the goods, and then thinking the other one is going to kill him and take the whole thing, they both poison each other and they both die in front of each other with all the loot on the table in between them. And the moral of the story is that just as capitalists knife each other in the back, so too do these proletariat robbers. And as soon as he finished that story, he started in on the Iron Heel, which is somewhat about the same sort of thing, right? You have bourgeois criminals who are knifing each other in the back, just like they're capitalistic overlords. And what is missing from this picture? Enlightened socialists like Ernest Everhard and and his wife, Avis. So there's that immediate context surrounding the Iron Heel. Then if you step back further and take in even more, in early 1906, remember that the San Francisco earthquake is April 1906. Just before the earthquake, he starts a new novel called Before Adam. Before Adam is about, it's about many things, but it's about the Pleistocene era, uh, what London called the Bone Age. And so what he's doing in that novel is looking back in time and as past time as in an infinite expanse backwards, right? In the Iron Heel, he's looking to the future as an infinite expanse in the other direction. So what we're thinking, what I'm thinking, what I'm claiming is that London, having read thoroughly in the works of Huxley and Darwin and other evolutionists and Herbert Spencer, he had his mind blown by the concept of evolution. And by that, I mean his sense of time was completely blown up by what evolution meant to him. And one of the things that meant to him was that time was expansive and never-ending, infinite in both directions. And so in 1906, he decides to write two novels, one about the past, infinite time, and one about the future, infinite time. Right? So they're kind of, they're very different books, but on that level, you can see London thinking about this grand concept of what time is. So that's incredibly interesting. The other thing, if you look after we're stepping back, right, and looking at that August 1906 period and contextualizing it even more, after he finishes the Iron Heel and starts and writes The Road, that takes him into February 1907. March 1907, he and Charmian leave on the, the ship that they've built, the Snark, and they sail off out of San Francisco to the Pacific Islands for what he had hoped would be a seven-year around-the-world voyage. Flying from the mast of the snark was the red flag of socialism. So this was his attempt, this voyage of his, the snark voyage, was his attempt to become an international socialist writer and thinker. We, we would call him an influencer now, I guess, content provider. When he lands in Tahiti, he gives his speech revolution. And he gave the speech revolution in Hawaii a couple of times. And then I think once more after Tahiti. And then the trip ended with his illness. And then they came home in 1909. So that's the general contact. That's what he was up to, right? Oh, I should also mention there's, if you step back even further, right, and take it to 
1905, the fall of 1905, that's when London is hired by Slayton Lyceum Bureau to speak on whatever topics he wanted to general audiences around the country. And this is the, the great tour, uh, London Socialist Tour, um, where he delivered the speech revolution hmm, countless times, tens and tens of times, uh, as well as other material. But this was pretty much the Jack London show on the road, advocating for socialism all across America. And then after he comes back, he's done with that. He's done with being a national socialist figure, and he wants to broaden his influence at the same time that he wants to exit from the U.S. situation. He's had enough of the U.S. situation, and he thinks now's the time to become an international writer and author. That's fascinating. There were two other moments in his life that seemed to inform the Iron Heel. His work as a war correspondent during the Russo-Japanese War seems to resonate with the way he talks about war and some of his predictions, which turn out to be remarkably correct about the coming world war and his run for mayor under the socialist ticket. Do you think some of that experience is used in the, uh, in the book? I don't think his run for uh, the mayorality of Oakland was terribly important to him. I think he was put up to it um, mm-hmm. uh, and he, w- he willingly entered into it. But it's ironic in a way, maybe contradictory, but he didn't believe in electoral politics until after the 1904 election. And so the 1904 election is incredibly important. It's a, it's a major turning point in London's life. And this also connects to his time as a war correspondent in, in Korea, which I'll get to. But The 1904 election is super important for London and for socialists in America in general, because it's the first time that Eugene Debs, running as a candidate for president, actually does incredibly well. I think he comes in third, but he beats out the prohibition candidate whom he lost to in the 1900 election. Right. So he's improving. The socialist vote is expanding. And so London wrote an essay, Explanation of the Great Socialist Vote in 1904, And after that election, he suddenly is advocating for people to join the electoral process and to effect change through voting. Before that, he was only committed to revolutionary politics. So the Russo-Japanese War factors in in kind of a negative way, right? He comes back. There's this moment. He leaves for Korea, or he leaves for Japan to be precise, in January of 1905. Uh, sorry, in 1904. And so he's just turned in the manuscript of The Sea Wolf and gets hired by Hearst to cover the war in again between the Russians and the, and the Japanese. While he's there, this is not his first trip to Japan. He went to Japan as a 17-year-old sailor in 1893 on the a sealing ship, Sophie Sutherland. So he's relatively familiar with Japan. I mean, he was a drunken 17-year-old sailor before, and now he's an accomplished, pretty famous author. So the person, Jack London, is very different at this point. And it's interesting that his early stories that take place in Japan, stories that he wrote for his high school newspaper, The Ages, are actually 
sympathetic toward Japanese. If there's a racism in his writing at that point, it's incredibly difficult to detect. Not so in 1904. He is flat out racist in his writings and what he said when he came back. He couched his racism in pragmatic take on what he was able to accomplish as a correspondent. He said that the Japanese prevented him from doing a good job of reporting because they just don't understand the Western mind, right? And the Western mind can't comprehend the Japanese mind. Why? Because we speak two completely different languages. It's always about language for London. Which is, you know, inherently problematic. But um, when he came back uh, from Korea, uh, Joan London, his daughter, who wrote an exceptional biography, uh, and if there's one biography you want to get, it's Joan London's Jack London and His Times, which came out in 1939 and still very, very good. There's a um, a moment in that biography that she talked to somebody who was in. A socialist local meeting. It must have been the Oakland local of the Socialist Party. And this person was there in the meeting when London said, I'm a white man first and a socialist second, because he had been going off on on Asians as a lesser race. And he was corrected by his fellow socialists. And that was his response. I'm a white man first and a socialist second. The November election completely changed that for him in his writings. So we don't know exactly what he was thinking, but my guess is that he didn't change his attitude toward agents. He just uh, put it under wraps and he saw that it was much more advantageous to the socialist cause to promote the brotherhood of man rather than separate out people's people by their race. Right? So in the 18, if you look at letters that he wrote in 1899, to his friend, Cloudsley Johns, where he's really tackling issues like race and, and other important matters. He says at one point, he does not believe in the brotherhood of man, that it's a utopian ideal and he's not a utopian, right? In 1904, he says the exact opposite. He is now a believer in the brotherhood of man. And in uh, 1905, he writes his very famous essay, Revolution. And in Revolution, he says that socialism transcends race prejudice. So we all breathe a sigh of relief. (laughs) Seriously, who wants to study a man who's a tight-in-the-wool racist? So we breathe a sigh of relief that he says that. But his later work and his later utterings, um, you know, show that he hasn't really reached a point in his life where he's truly able to accept different races as equals. He may have reached that point later on in life, and maybe his Hawaiian writings from 1914 to 1916 are a sign of him moving towards a true realization of the brotherhood of man. But I think it's in doubt. I think it's it's very much arguable. You know, I, I did want to say one thing about Jack's racism. And that is a couple of things, actually. One is that people say, well, excuse his racism, right? Because he was just a man of his times, and that's, that's what people thought, right? And 
that's just a rationalization. Uh, it's a weak rationalization. He had friends. One of his friends was William English Walling. William English Walling was a co-founder of the NAACP in 1901. So he was very much aware. Uh, Emma Goldman was a friend, and she was working for equal rights for blacks and whites, right? London never did that. London never said that blacks and whites are equal or that blacks should have equal voting rights or just basic human rights. He doesn't say they shouldn't, but he doesn't argue for them, except in the Iron Heel, in a way, right? So there's a footnote in the Iron Heel. Avis's father is a professor at Berkeley, and he has been fired by his department chair. And the department chair, he says, is constrained by what the university leadership is telling him to do. And Ernest says, yes, leg shackles are very difficult to wear. And then there's a footnote from the historian, Anthony Meredith, who explains what a leg shackle is, because in the age of the Brotherhood of Man, there's no such thing, right? And London says that basically slavery is wrong, right? It was awful for African-Americans but also for workers. And so this, this is the point that London and Eugene Debs and the Socialist Party argued, right? They weren't advocating necessarily for equal rights for African-Americans. What they were advocating for was a connection between African-American slavery and wage slavery in their time period. The understand the plight, the economic plight of the American proletariat and the working class, Debs, London, and other socialists, compared them to African-American slaves, right? So they, you know, it's, it's a weak comparison, right? There's nothing really similar to wage slavery and African-American slavery. In fact, one of the arguments in the 1850s, right, was that slaves were better off because they were provided with you know, housing and wages and so forth and so on. So the economic arguments just, just don't work. But at the same time, it does seem to indicate that London had some kind of consciousness about the horrible plight of African-Americans. So you were going to ask about utopias. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, now you're, you're going to have me ask more about this because, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we have that line in, in the adaptation, but it's a complicated line for me because basically he's saying the struggles we're going through are just as hard or difficult as, you know, or implying as slavery was. Right. And obviously that's not true. And and a little racist, or a lot racist. So, you know, you have, I mean, it's not overt in, in that, that note, but knowing London. And I feel like, you know, this is the tension. I was, I was talking to someone who did, does labor history, who was talking about this as well, the tension between, that still exists today, uh, in labor between the desire to have a united front and really a sort of anti-immigrant racist you know, uh, mm -hmm. feeling that these people are taking our jobs away and they're the other and we should be, you know, defending ourselves, first of all. I mean, we, I think we have to remember that there was a strong feeling in California against Asian Americans because they were such a threat yeah. to, at least in the minds of white people, to their jobs. 
And London grew up in a section of Oakland where it was okay to to harass, uh, verbally harass and physically harass Asian Americans. And there's a memoir written by London's good friend, Frank Atherton, where he talks about a day when he in London just pretty much spent the whole day tormenting Asian Americans. So I don't think that is so easily jettisoned from your psyche or from your behavior, really. And this is anti-racism light for London, I think. And that's, and it's, and it's just too bad that he couldn't have done more, but this is really all that he did. If you look through all of London's works to try and find something that's advocating for African-Americans, this is all you'll find. I'm going to get back to the question about Utopia in a second, but uh, sure. As, so, for London, what is socialism? Because you know there were a lot of varieties of socialism going around uh, at the time, and you talk about how Emma Goldman had a very different and much you know much more equitable view of of what socialism is. It seems like London's socialism is very attached to science for him. When he talks about socialism, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about uh, advocating for the proletariat and for the working class. And he's talking about a materialistic conception of history. So in those ways, he's a Marxist socialist. He talks a great deal about workers owning the means of production and the possibility of the government using uh, eminent domain to take over ownership of private enterprises so that the workers can own them and run them. Beyond that, uh, he's anti-reformist. So he doesn't believe in charity. He doesn't believe in the amelioration of ills in American society. When he goes to London and the East End in 1902 and writes The People of the Abyss, and lives for, what, six weeks or so in, in the East End, incredibly poor section of London, getting a sense of the daily life of the extremely poor people, and then coming up with a solution. His solution is the bulldozer. He said the only way to get rid of this problem of poverty is to wipe the slate clean and build a brand new city along socialist lines. So when he was pressed to enumerate the ways that that could be done, he said, he begged off. He said, I'm not a social architect. I can't design a socialist society for you. All I can tell you is that revolution is required. Capitalists will fight back. And so socialists have to be as well-armed or better armed than the capitalists. Okay, so now we're going to talk about, because this seemed to lead into this idea of the Iron Heel being a dystopia where this violence breaks out, but is couched inside a utopia where this brotherhood of man actually is realized 700 years in the future. Do you think his perspective by the time he was writing the novel was more optimistic or pessimistic in nature? Oh, I think he was deeply pessimistic. <laughs> it's very funny. He, had a, uh, he would not call this a utopia. And he had this moment in, I think it was in 
in the in the early days of composing the novel, he wrote to George Brett at Macmillan and Company and said, "Hey, I'm I'm writing this book," and Brett was very excited because Bellamy's looking backward and other utopian narratives were so popular. So he wrote back and said, oh, this is such a great idea to write a utopia. Uh, I'm all for it, right? So uh, London writes back, says, great, send me a contract. So he sends him the contract and London writes, I'm sending you the contract back. By the way, this is not a utopia that I'm writing about. And Brett was like, oh, shoot, you know, but... What I call it, is, and it's not prophecy either. London insisted on that point to any number of people. He's not prophesizing the future. And he said, I don't think this actually will happen, that the oligarchy will suppress proletariat revolution in this bloody way. At least he said he hoped it wouldn't. But what he was writing, and what I call it, is a Jeremiah, which is an American literary form that dates back to 1630, basically in the 1630s, as uh, Sack Van Berkovich has written in Puritan Origins of American Self and the American Jeremiah, this form continued all the way through the 19th and, and into the 20th century. So the Jeremiah is a warning, and that's what London was trying to do. He was trying to write a warning to the people. It's like, if you continue on the, your silly ways, we're going to end up just like this. So in a way, it's pessimistic. In a way, it's optimistic. It is optimistic in the sense that, that he actually thought that this could be avoided. But it's terribly pessimistic because he placed the Brotherhood of Man 700 years in, into the future. So it's both, I think. I want to talk a little bit uh, about a religion. So you have this figure of the bishop in the Iron Heel, and he's actually a very simple pathetic figure in, in many ways, which wasn't always the way that a, a socialist novel would, would portray religious figures. What, what was London's take on religion? Right. Yes. Uh, the bishop is an incredibly important figure in the book. And he goes from a respected religious leader to someone who's locked up in a sane asylum in Napa, which, by the way, was a place that Jack and Charmian's good friend, Frederick Bamford, was staying in 1906. He was at the Napa Sanatorium. They went to visit him. So uh, I think that probably had found its way into the book and in the figure of the bishop. So the bishop is a completely ineffectual person because he thinks that he can avoid, through charity and good works, the wrath of the oligarchy. And he can't. It's just... London was entirely sympathetic to Christianity and to Jewish religion and to some extent to Buddhism. You see that a little bit in some of his Russian-Japanese war correspondence. But his major interest was in, in religion. So there's, you know, he wrote how many books? 57 volumes, published volumes. And you would think, given that he lived to the age of 40, that he wouldn't have had time to write major works that didn't see the light of day. But one of them, there were a number that he wrote that never were published. And one of them was what he called the Christ novel. And the Christ novel he wrote in, he returned to it in three different periods. And each time he was trying to figure out for himself what Jesus meant to him. 
So at first, Jesus was the Christ, and then Jesus became the proletariat working class hero, the carpenter who takes on the ruling class in his time. And then he becomes like this mysterious figure who has access to the divine. And then that's where London leaves it. So it's an acknowledgement of the God power. I don't think that London felt that for himself necessarily, but he recognized its authenticity for somebody like the historical figure of Jesus. And by now it should be obvious that he read a zillion books about Jesus, right? So uh, putting that all together, he just never was able to come to a, a definitive conclusion about the figure of Jesus and therefore truly the importance of religion. He wouldn't denigrate it. And he saw most religious leaders as enemies of uh, the future socialist state. But the figure of the bishop is uh, particularly heartbreaking because he is such a good man. And he's so naive about, uh, since we're looking at him from Avis's point of view, he is so naive about the powers that are arraigned against him. And he thinks that at the end, he's wearing overalls and he's carrying his potatoes and he's He's handing out free food to everybody. And this, these are all wonderful things for London and for us. But for London, it's just not, a, it will never be enough, right? And then ultimately, the oligarchy finds all of the bishop's sources of money and pretty much puts them in an asylum prison. Do you think that Avis was particularly based on anyone in, in London's life? I've read some people talk about the Jewish woman he may or may not have been seeing at some point. And, Anna Strunsky. Uh, yes, yes. I don't know whether there's a correlation there, or, or do you think she was invented whole cloth? Yeah, I think um, in London drew on the personalities of the people around him for his characters, pretty much. So Avis's character is... You know, perhaps there's some of uh, Anna Stronsky, who was married to William English Walling, by the way. Uh, there's some of Anna Stronsky, but I think really mostly it's Charmian. And I say that because the Iron Heel, we think that we are getting this story of Avis and Ernest's life together, right? But if you do the chronology, you realize that she's only really talking about a very small part of the time that they spent together. And that part of the time is their initial love affair. So the Iron Heel isn't so much a love story as it is a first love story. And this is being written in the wake of his marriage to Charmian, which was in uh, November 1905. So uh, less than a year, right? They get married in November in Chicago while they're on the road for the Jack London Socialist Show. They come back to Glen Ellen, where they lived and Oakland in January, early February. And then soon after that, he's deep into the Iron Heel. So I see a lot of Charmian in Avis because I think London and Charmian together thought that they were, that they had created a kind of perfect couple in the way that Avis and, and Ernest are. And it's interesting then, I mean, Charmian was an accomplished author in her own right, and a good editor of London's work, a light editor, 
but nonetheless an editor and sometime contributor to his works. You can see her uh, sentences written into his manuscripts later on in the teens. Uh, and she started before Adam, which he composed in, in early 1906. She helped him. When I say helped him write before Adam, that, that sound, that's much too strong. But she participated in the compositional process for before Adam. So she was there for the Iron Heel as well, even though she, there are no markings by her in the manuscript or typescript, as far as I can tell. Yeah, so I think this is Avis. I think it's Charmian is is the principal character behind Avis. Did you see the uh, there was a Russian adaptation of the Iron Heel, the Iron Heel of Oligarchy years ago? No, I don't know if it's uh, yeah. There there have been a few oddball uh, adaptations that I looked up, though I I noticed it's sort of in many ways it's is not an, a novel that people talk about as much when they talk about London's over how important do you think it is in terms of his overall oeuvre? Oh, I think it's absolutely crucial to his writing. And I think it's incredibly interesting that you staged a, a production of it because one of Jack London's descendants, Tarnall Abbott, also staged a production of The Iron Heel in Oakland. And I think, I don't know, I'd love to hear what you think about this, I've always imagined uh, staging the Iron Heel. First of all, first of all, the, the Iron Heel is, I, I mentioned that London took the, the concept of Superman for, from George Bernard Shaw. In February of 1906, he tells a reporter that he believes, like George Bernard Shaw, that socialism is the basis for all art. And then he writes the Iron Heel, right? So, and before Adam, for that matter. So there's something very theatrical about the Iron Heel, it, just inherently so. If I can digress for a minute, what I think about London's career, when I think about London's career, I see it as a dialectic between two modes of writing, the absorptive and the theatrical. And these are terms I take from art history, from Michael Fried's study of 17th century French painting, absorption and theatricality. And theatrical painting, theatrical writing is the moment when the painter or the author needs to stand before the audience and explain himself. And this is something that London did constantly, right? In his essay works, even in his fiction, some of the short stories are very declarative, right? And the Iron Heel is obviously a theatrical piece. And the absorptive mode is a looking inward and a kind of a, a moments of self-discovery or self-examination, right? Turning his back on the audience and delving deep into psyches or explanations of events. Iron Heel is not that. Iron Heel is the presentation of ideas that London has formulated in previous essays, two of which are extremely important, and one of which is quoted at length in the Iron Heel, which is revolution. And then the other essay, important essay, is Question of the Maximum, where he talks about surplus value, because at one point he did say that the Iron Heel is a novel about surplus value. So, you have this theatricality aspect, this mode of theatricality of the Iron Heel, right? And I always imagined if I was going to stage this as a play, it would be in theater in the round with a with a turning circular stage. Half of it would be the action that we 
you know, hear about or, and, and see, you know, the revolution and the fighting and all of that. And the other half is a single person, Anthony Meredith, sitting in a chair explaining to the audience what they're seeing, right? And so it's this kind of back and forth. And as the stage kind of turns, I don't know if it would be possible to do that, but there's just, you know, it's just, and it's theatrical because I think you can divide it into three acts. And the first act is like chapters one through 10 or so. And those are all speeches, basically. You think you're going to get a narrative, but all you get are, are for the first 10 pages are are speeches, right? And the famous one is the Philomath Club and the Bishop's Speech and so forth, right? And the second and third acts are are very different from it. Then that's when you start getting the action and plot, really. So I don't know. Do you, does that make sense to you as a as a theater person? Sure. I mean, uh, I did some of the same things. We have uh, we have an Antonia Meredith uh, on stage uh-huh. throughout, interrupting the action with with explanations. And the the audio drama is is going to be cut up into three parts. So we did, they did it a little bit uh, differently. The first part is actually much more about the romance. Second, ah. the second part is called rhetoric, and that's all rhetoric. And the third part is called revolution, and that's all the wow. uh, violent. So that's um, totally great. So that's how we approached it. There's another aspect to the novel, if I can just throw this in, is that Ernest Everhard is the adult. Johnny from The Apostate. The Apostate is uh, one of London's more better-known short stories, and it's the story of a kid in Oakland who works in a factory, and up until the last two paragraphs, it looks like, you know, the factory system's just going to completely destroy him. But somehow, he gets the inner strength to leave Oakland and go out on the road, and he's going to... Leaves home and unannounced, he doesn't tell his mom and his family, he just goes and leaves. And he finds a train track and uh, plans to jump on a train and, and hobo around the country. The somehow, somehow he finds the inner strength. That moment is he's sitting on his stoop in the slums of Oakland and notices a tree that he's never noticed before on the street because he's always worn out. He's always so tired by the toil of, of the bottling factory. And that tree becomes a symbol of freedom for him, right? Avis, Avis's manuscript is lodged into a tree in Glen Ellen where Jack and Charmian had their ranch, right? And there's that connection. It's like the the tree, the natural force and the writing, the, tr- the hollow tree is a new kind of abyss for London. The abyss is the place where London located the source of his imagination. So it's, it's a very different place than, say, where the Greeks thought inspiration came from, right? Mount Olympus or, you know, some high peak or... Or different from where Milton and other poets at that time and, and later thought that inspiration and, and imagination came from God, right? For London, the imagination comes from a hole in the ground in the Klondike or uh, a hole in a tree. Um, it's a place where 
The abyss is a place where writing, death, and money, and chance, those four elements, all come together. And that happens in the Iron Heel. It's it's a different shift for him as a writer because it's in the Southland instead of the Northland. There's so many Klondike stories about people going to a hole in the ground to find money, and they find death, money, chance, and writing instead. But London's shifting the place, the source of his imagination from the north, from an abyss in the north to an abyss, a green abyss in the Southland. And so that's important to know about the Iron Heel, too. It's not simply a political novel, but it's also a story about London's imagination as well. So so thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. A really fascinating discussion. Thank you for the opportunity. Join us. This supplemental episode was produced by Untitled Theatre Company Number 61, a theater of ideas. Musical arrangements are provided by Richard Philbin, who also provided all of the instrumentals. The episode was sound designed and edited by Ian W. Hill. Funding for this podcast was made possible in part by grants from the Lower Manhattan Community Council, the Puffin Foundation, and the Alma and Mara Shapiro Fund. My name is Edward Einhorn, and I'm the writer and director. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. 